Okay, today on the Plant Cunning Podcast, we have our friend, Maddie B, or Mathado, who is an aspiring farmer coming from a research background. And we're here to talk about some of his recent uh, farming experiments. So how are you today, Maddie B? Doing really well. It's a little bit gray, but uh, it's been sunny and just very colorful and beautiful. It's my first fall in the East, so yeah. Yeah, you're from New Mexico, right? Yeah, I'm from New Mexico. Spent a lot of time in the West, traveled all over the West, but now I'm like on the East side of things traveling. And you're in Asheville, North Carolina right now, right? Yeah, I'm in Asheville. I'm checking things out. It's been really cool so far. Very cool. Well, we met you up here in uh, New York. You're yeah. interning at a at a farm just about five minutes away. And we interviewed uh, Ben and Greta, one of our first episodes. So you're interning there at Unadilla Farms, right? Yeah, you build a community farm just down the road. And I actually um, delivered vegetables to you this this summer, which was uh, it was cool to meet you in person as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, that's a, it's such an awesome farm that they actually will deliver the um, produce from their CSA or community supported agriculture to people within 15 minutes of the, the farm. So you don't even have to like leave your house to get fresh veggies. It's just awesome. Yeah. So we do have a traditional first question on the plant cutting podcast, as you may well know, and it's how did you come to the plant path? Yes, I, uh, I'm aware of this question. I've been you know, anticipating this interview and listening to all different interviews. But um, yeah, so I guess I had like a really conventional upbringing. Um, but my dad would take me and my brother hiking a lot when we were kids. And Right before I was like sucked into a totally conventional path, my dad took me on this very special hike one morning when I was 14. We climbed, this is the first time I climbed a mountain and I just like felt very relaxed. And it was like this incredible experience of climbing a mountain at dawn. Uh, and that like started a passion for hiking for me. And I just kind of just did hiking more and more. And I was also in, like learning about climate change. Um, and I was, I went to college, studied chemical engineering with the intention of like doing research on alternative energy or something, um, but then needed a break from the engineering world after college. And I just decided to experiment with woofing. Uh, I had heard about it, but I was like, okay, what's this whole thing about? And it was seemed like a cool thing to do during the pandemic, as well as, you know, what I had heard about sustainable farming through my involvement with sustainability and climate activism, that sort of thing. And then I was, uh, I was woofing in Montana that summer and I was taking care of some cucumbers um, and the mountain was there as well, like this beautiful valley in Montana in Southwestern Montana. And the cucumbers and the parsley and the cilantro and all the plants that I was working with in the high tunnel were like telling me <laughs> that this is what I need to do. I need to be a farmer. Um, and it was like this really profound moment of clarity. And I realized that like, when you take care of plants, the plants are also taking care of you. There's something like about that. And since then I've just been like doing permaculture and going to different farms and um, trying to increase my experience. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool to have that experience of, you know, the plants speaking to you and connecting at that deep level where you're like, all right, I'm gonna redirect my whole life to 
uh, moments of clarity are sometimes hard to come by. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, I found that they happen all the time in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. I, I need to go there all the time. <laughs> to make yeah. Sense. Yeah, it's true. And and good on your dad too for taking you hiking and mountain climbing, you know, from a young age. Cause that that connection with nature, like from, you know, our youth and from our childhood, like really makes an impact on our the whole, you know, trajectory trajectory of our lives. Is that the word? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about like uh like permaculture and soil. Um, so how, how did you get interested in, in soil and what, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on the importance of soil? Well, yeah, as sort of like a, a precursor to talking about the actual research project, which was on soil microorganisms. Yeah. Um, well, I was in a, after Montana, like I went back to New Mexico mm-hmm. and just pretty much immediately started the permaculture class. Mm-hmm. Um, with Michael Reed, who you may not have heard of, but he's like a wizard, basically. And he's very well connected with nature and wilderness. Mm-hmm. He was the teacher for this permaculture class. And at one point, we talked about Korean natural farming, um, which it was just kind of like mentioned in the class. But it's like a, he mentioned it as a method that's an alternative to a commercial inoculant, which is where you basically buy a mixture of organisms from a company in a bottle and then you use that on your soil and like the organisms are supposed to help your crops. And he was mentioning that Korea natural farming includes an alternative method for making that type of mixture of organisms with local materials from your farm at your farm. Um, And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. Like, I wonder, you know, how viable that is. And, um, And then I, you know, I ended up pursuing that more deeply with the research project yeah. Yeah, and I think the, and, and to address what you mentioned about soil, um, you know, the, and this is also sort of the connection between the, the scientific side of things, which I'm presenting today, as well as I think what you normally talk about on the podcast, which is kind of more of a maybe mystical or spiritual experience of nature and, and the universe. Um, and with herbalism as well, I think that what I've learned through learning about the soil is that it's not really just a medium for plants to grow in. Um, It's not just like a place where they live that we can give the nutrients and water and they have the sunlight and that's that's all they need. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually a whole complex system of needs that the plant is pretty much taking care of on their own, but is also like vastly interconnected in this web of connections with other organisms in the soil and non-living things in the soil as well and when you treat the soil as like a living entity um, you actually end up with a healthier plant and this is overlooked in conventional agriculture and i think also the better we understand our soil and the organisms that are there um, the more powerful our medicines can be the more nutritious our food can be and the better we're actually treating the environment yeah that's a really great way of, of saying that. Yeah. So is soil like a person? I think, yeah. I mean, I actually got this when I was, I was teaching high school last year. So that's another thing we haven't, I have a background in research, but also teaching. And 
I was teaching high school and we did this like, you know, short project at the end of the year um, where we talked about the environment. And I was taking kids hiking and there was a, we did an activity with the Bosque uh, Center, which is, the Bosque is like the stretch of wilderness in the middle of Albuquerque, New Mexico that's still wilderness. It's like this tiny little stretch on either side of the Rio Grande. And the Bosque Center that we were working with took our, our kids in there and they were talking about the soil. Uh, and one of the question, one of the kids asked the question, so is the soil alive? Uh-huh. <laughs> and they had some answer. I don't know. But I think they were like, they said something like, yeah, some people think it is. Oh. And then when we went back and we had a discussion about it, I was like, totally, it totally is because when you look at it that way, when you treat it as a person, um, it's more of an exchange, it's more of a relationship than an extractive sort of mentality that our culture has tried to teach us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's something to extract resources out of. It's, you know, it doesn't have any agency. Well, it doesn't have any personhood. There's, and yeah, I mean, not only is it teeming with life, you know, all of these millions of, microorganisms and insects and worms and everything but there does seem to be a uh larger organism too you know like you look at the forest soils like they're all connected with mycelium mm. and that you that's to me that's an entity <laughs> you know mm. yeah yeah i couldn't agree with you more and i think one of the patterns that i've noticed is that like what these organisms are typically up to is overall creating conditions for life to continue to thrive and exist in that place. Um, and when we like interrupt that with our fertilizers or with tilling or with that kind of thing, and when we like think that we know better than the plant and when we think we know better than the millions of years of evolution that are there in the soil, um, we end up with all these like environmental right. catastrophes and erosion and um, yeah, like just kind of a, a strong sense of disconnection from our ancestry as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a certain amount of disturbance is natural, you know what I mean? And it, that's what allows for the, like a lot of the, the annual crops that we grow for food, you know, are, are conditioned to to grow in you know those sorts of situations where there's disturbance and you look at all indigenous uh farming techniques you know throughout there's always some form of disturbance but when you look at like the, these cornfields <laughs> everywhere where it's just like tilled every year and then like all of these external inputs are put in there that just interrupt the the natural biology of the soil it it really just it is just an it's a mining process yeah, really very extractive just, <laughs> but so that takes us to uh this this research project you did because that looking at korean natural farming and looking at the the particular imo uh, thing that you make <laughs> um it's a so it, it seems like a really good idea and it seems like a wonderful thing to be able to do is to reintroduce these um, local microbes back into the soil. Um, so yeah, could you tell us a little bit about this 
about your your research project and, and what you wanted to, to do with it and what, what you did? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, um, <clears throat> I was kind of interested in Korean natural farming, or at least in a passing moment in the permaculture class, heard about it. And um, it seems like when you use these domesticated crops or domesticated plants, vegetables on farms, um, they're not wild to that area. And so they need some sort of help. Like that's something that farms year after year, they need to apply some kind of fertilizer, whether that be compost or chemical fertilizers, or um, there's other ways that they can do it as well. Mm -hmm. The honey, honey truck. <laughs> they have just like trucks of, of cow manure. They <laughs> oh, the honey truck. Yeah. Yeah. Very stinky. <laughs> Very stinky. Oh. <laughs> cow manure, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so this this research project is um, yet another amendment method, which is called IMO, as you mentioned, um, Indigenous Microorganisms IMO for short. And it's actually one recipe as part of Korean natural farming. Um, Korean natural farming is like a long set of recipes for different things and also techniques for applying those to your soil. Um, and it comes from Dr. Cho Han Kyu. He developed it in, I think, the 70s or 80s. And he got famous teaching about it in Korea and then has expanded to like create this whole curriculum of Korean natural farming that's been taught in like Japan and it's pretty popular in India. It's also like relatively common in Hawaii, um, very uncommon in the Northeast United States. Yeah. But that's part of the, the thing that I was interested in with this project is can we use Korean natural farming in the Northeast given the climate differences and the resource availability because with, with the recipe you need certain special things like rice bran. Um, and so I was interested in that. And then um, talking with Ben and Greta at Unadilla Community Farm, we, they had been doing a research project through um, the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, which is SARE, S-E-S-A-R-E -S for short. And um, that's an organization that gives grants to people who are doing farming type of research, research on agriculture, but also like educational programs too. Like you can get a grant for educational outreach that you want to do for sustainable agriculture. Um, and so I got a, I applied for this grant to study Korean natural farming and at Unadilla Community Farm. I applied like as a quote farmer, but uh, I was just kind of like a, a staff person, if you will, at the at the farm. And Ben and Greta are like the true farmers. And then the through the grant process, you get connected or you you you're asked to be connected with a scientist who will help you with the actual science part of the project to answer your questions. Um, and it's a really great way to, like if you're interested, any listeners are interested in looking at the SARE grant process, it's a great way to um, do projects that you're interested in doing in order to teach people about sustainable agriculture yeah. for those things. Is that uh, throughout the US, SARE? Yeah, they have, they have branches everywhere. This was. Oh. East Sarah. I'm most familiar with Northeast Sarah, but the, the, there's a branch for the Southeast, there's a branch for the West. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's got the grant. Yeah, I think that's an amazing uh, situation there because uh, I personally think that it's good for people to do science, you know, 
like I, I like the the de democratization of science, <laughs> mm, right? Um, and that sort of seems to be helping helping that uh, connecting farmers with the experience of 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 actual research scientists and giving them the tools to be able to uh, put together real good you know good experiments, uh, you know, on their on their own, doing what they're you know interested in what interested in and what might potentially be helpful for for them and for other people because they're they're you know, they're 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 ones who have feet on the ground you know <laughs> they're the ones that, like the where it matters if uh, the IMO works for them in that in that situation yeah. or if it's better to have compost or something else true um so so how did you find your research scientist friend to help you with understanding the science part we, um, we initially had the same scientist collaborator that Ben and Greta had on their two-year project, and he was from Cornell. Um, he was from the Cornell Extension Office, which is always super down to help any yeah. kind of farming questions. And this type of thing, they're like really down for. Awesome. Um, but so he, this this farmer, the they're called the technical advisor. Um, he kind of backed out near the end of the project, like a month or two ago. And then I, I was like, okay. <laughs> so we found a, a new one and she is from Penn State. Um, and she's been tremendously helpful as well. She's been helping me write the report and analyze the data. She's a, a microbiology expert. Um, she's getting her PhD very soon actually. So her name cool. is Laura Kaminsky. Laura Pinsky? Laura Kaminsky. Kaminsky, cool. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a great match. Someone who's like already in that world studying microbiology. Yeah. Um, so do you want to tell us about your experiment? Like kind of how you, like what you did physically and um, how, how you, it- How, how you it put went. it together, like how you, how you came up with the experiment too. Yeah. Yeah, well, so, um, so background in research, I've done research now in like four different sort of research projects. And I actually have a paper published on cement uh, science, cement chemistry. So I have like a pretty, I felt really confident going into this um, independently to, to design my own experiments. That's something that you could get help from a, a scientist to do if you don't have that type of experience. But um, for me, it was like the first step was always just read what's out there, read what studies have been done on the things that I was interested in, which was Korean natural farming. And it seemed to me that a lot of people were focusing on the um, trials of plants where you treat one set of plants with Korean natural farming and you treat another set of plants conventionally or just with compost or something like that. And then you observe what happens with the plants and you try to quantify like the nutrition of the plant or the size or things like that. Um, but there was not a lot of discussion about like the biology of what was going on with IMO. Um, there was some, and there's some studies from Hawaii, but almost nothing in the Northeast about like, about how many organisms are there, what type of organisms are there, what are they doing? Um, and so I wanted to look more specifically at when you do this, when you make this Korean natural farming mixture of indigenous microorganisms as they're called, what is the chemistry of it? What is the biology of it? Um, and how does it compare to compost? And then also comparing that to a commercial product called MycoGrow, which comes from Paul Stamets' company. 
um, fungi perfecti. And it's uh, microgro is, is like a powder that you can buy and you have it shipped to you and then you mix it with water and you spray it on your soil. So it's like very much similar to how you would use a chemical fertilizer. And I was just curious about whether, you know, there's some sort of nutritional benefit to it compared to IMO. Um, and then I was also interested in the biology of that and comparing that back to IMO and compost. Great. Cool. Yeah. That sounds like a fun experiment. So yeah. just to give a little background. So there have, there have been other studies done on, um, on IMO as far as like how it, how, uh, how plants grow, like how well it, uh, helps plants grow. Right. Yeah, there or, have been. Yeah. But so this one is mostly about like what is what IMO actually has inside of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the this project too, like the part of the motivation for that is because this was only going to be a one year project. Uh -huh. Trying to answer questions like how does IMO affect plant growth? Um, it's really hard to do within one year. And the studies I was looking at, including previous studies from SARE, actually, um, from farmers that have worked through SARE, they um, had a hard time making any definitive conclusions about what happens to the plant within one year. Like it's, it's really hard to know. And because it's such a complex system and because there's so many variables at play with how you make the IMO, I was more interested in looking at that process and trying to simplify it. Right. So yeah, so what, what did those studies conclude uh, as far as like how, like, so they're basically inconclusive about the effects of IMO. There's a lot of, I mean, there's, there's plenty of data out there that shows that IMO is beneficial to okay. plant growth, like nutrition, um, and more, more so than like the studies that are out there, there's a lot of anecdotal claims. Mm -hmm. Right. This is a famous method from Korea that works really well. It's kind of like you would read on the cover of a magazine, like try this one tip to improve yeah. the size of the crops. Um, it's amazing, like the, the or all these stories about it claim that it's an amazing thing. And I was just kind of interested in approaching that with science, wondering. So how does one go about making IMO? Good question. So there's, um, it's complicated. So <laughs> IMO. <laughs> I am one of the um, recipes that are a part of Korean natural farming. And there's other things like fermented plant juice and fermented fish juice and different amendments that you can add to your crops. But IMO is like the most famous one. And what you do is you take um, white rice and a wooden box, mm -hmm. small wooden box, and you put that in the wilderness. So somewhere wild near your farm and you let it get moldy so that takes about three to five days. You don't want it to be black mold though. So you want it to be completely covered in white mold, but no black mold. And when you take that moldy rice then, when it's done and put it with some brown sugar in a jar for a couple of days, that's called IMO2, on like the second stage. And then after the brown sugar, you know, after that sits for a couple of days, you take some bran. So rice bran is the traditional use for Korean natural farming because rice bran is commonly available. It's a byproduct of rice production, um, commonly available in Korea. So you can take the bran and it's basically like another carbohydrate source for the organisms. Uh, and when you combine or when 
you're kind of inoculating the bran with a small amount of that brown sugar and rice, IMO2. Uh, and then it becomes IMO3 over the course of a week where it, the brown or the, the bran is now getting really moldy. And you want to cover that as well so that it's trapping the moisture and heating up and things like that. And then um, that's IMO3. And the final step is to combine it with an equal part of soil. And the idea with that is that you're actually letting the organisms that are in a bran that basically fully colonized the bran to now inhabit a soil habitat that will make it easier on them when you then use that final mixture on your actual soil on your farm. And so how much do you need to mix in? Like, so you have your IMO3, mix it, like mix in with the soil. Um, if you have like three acres of, are you making like huge batches of this or do you just need like a little sprinkle? There's different ways of doing it. Um, there, there are people who apply it as a spray Okay. Is, uh, you can dilute it a lot with water and then um, and then spray that. And I think that would work well for larger areas. Yeah. What I ended up uncovering is um, this particular mixture that I made, the IMO4, which is the soil and the bran, like the final product that you end up with, IMO4, um, it was like really heavy and kind of very nutrient dense and also had some strange anaerobic qualities. And so like using that as a top dressing as you would with a compost where you would kind of like add an inch yeah. of your soil every year or something with compost. Mm -hmm. I don't know that like you could economically do the same type of thing with IMO because it's, um, it's more expensive and heavier and less nutrient dense. So you might like apply less of it, I think just for economic reasons. Yeah. And so in your experiment, you used also uh, wheat bran, right? Because that's a local byproduct. Right, yeah, wheat bran, I got it from a mill in New York, actually. So that was pretty local. Um, regional, <laughs> yeah. What's that? Regional. <laughs> yeah, regional. It was, it was a three hour drive, so. But it was closer than Korea, so. Um, yeah. There's no rice. There's no rice growing anywhere around here. Maybe well, some wild rice, but that's not even the same genus. So, actually, well, and that's the thing is sometimes, like when you buy these commercial products, there's like made in Japan, for example, and then shipped, you know. And, um, but yeah, and the the wheat bran was closer than rice bran sources because you could get rice bran maybe from farms in the southeast. Um, but I was kind of interested in specifically Northeast. Mm -hmm. Like, could you make a similar quality IMO with wheat bran instead of rice bran? And that was one of the questions that, that I pursued with the project. Okay. And so what did you find with the wheat bran versus rice um, bran? Well, actually for, for wheat bran and rice bran, um, they produce a similar quality thing. Um, and maybe we can talk more specifically after we get into the details of the project, but like maybe spoiler alert, the IMO itself, even though it was similar between wheat bran and rice bran, um, was relatively low quality for like the commercial farming purpose that it's okay. that we use it for, which is like kind of what Sarah is interested in too, is like economic sustainability. What a lot of farmers are interested in is, is their wallet. So if I was gonna tell people, should you use IMO or compost 
for your wallet's sake, you might just keep using compost in the meantime. But if you're like curious and interested, IMO is a really interesting thing to explore. Mm. Yeah. So there's not that much of a difference between wheat bran uh, IMO and rice bran IMO, but they're, they're, well, we'll get into the, yeah, let's get into the details. Yeah. Why don't we do yeah. that? Okay. So tell us about the, yeah, the whole details of your experiment. Sure. Um, so let's see, let me think. There are basically three questions that I wanted to ask with this project. Um, the first one is what happens to the chemical nutrients and the organisms that are present throughout the IMO process? So you, I mentioned the complicated process of making IMO. There's like four stages and each of these stages involves like different media, different habitat, different food for organisms. So I was kind of curious to see what, you know, how it develops. And so with the idea with IMO being that you are um, taking wilderness organisms that are well adapted to that particular ecosystem and locality and climate. And then you are like introducing your crops, which might be domesticated um, to that particular resilience maybe. And then I wanted to see specifically, like, do we actually have similar conditions or organisms that come from the wilderness and end up in the final IMO product? This is a question that hasn't been answered in the Northeast. It's been, there's been one study on it in Hawaii and they found yes, yeah, that there's organisms from the wilderness. And depending on where you put it in the wilderness, it, it changes the outcomes in the organisms that are in the final mixture. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So are like, are spores, for instance, spores of mushrooms getting into the, 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 the rice and then like, it's kind of like a spore slurry. Is that like the, the idea behind it? Yeah, I was, I was wondering the same thing. I wondered if it was, if it was um, fungi that were at play or bacteria or both or what other organisms might be there because we talk a lot about fungi and bacteria. We know, we know a lot about what they do in the soil because they seem to be like um, primarily like some of the most um, obvious present, obviously present in the soil but we don't really talk about things like protozoa or nematodes or even oomycetes um, or microarthropods, worms, insects, all these other things that are happening in the soil. And with IMO, nobody's, nobody's ever talked about anything except for fungi and bacteria. So I wanted to sort of investigate whether there were protozoa or nematodes that were helping. Um, yeah. Sorry for the digression there. <laughs> no worries. I mean, I think as we're like uncovering the details of the project, there's just so many interesting and fascinating things that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Want to share. Um, so wait, if we so we talked about the first question that I had, which is you know what happens with the biology and the chemistry throughout IMO production. The second question is how does the final IMO product with wheat bran and rice bran compare to a traditional like Northeastern US traditional composting method hmm. that farmers would already be familiar with. That's really easy to do because you have all the materials there on your farm. Um, and then I thirdly wanted to compare that to um, MycoGrow, the, the product that I mentioned, the, it's a mycorrhizal fungi inoculant. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Do, do you think we could get just a little bit into the micro grow too? Like, because in your, in your paper, you're talking, you're, you say that it really is a different kind of thing than the, than the other, than compost or IMO. So like, what, 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 what is micro grow really? Yeah. Um, that's a great point. Um, the initial in like motivation for including micro grow was to try and compare these other products to one to a method that's really cheap and easy for farmers to do. Um, you can buy a pound of this stuff for like 150 bucks and that's good for 4,000 square feet, which is plenty. Um, and you don't have to do the work of like making it or anything. So I was like, is this too good to be true? And I wanted to like investigate that. Yeah. As we did the project, it turned out that microgrow, because it's an inoculant, it's not a product that contains living organisms other than spores. Mm. And it's basically, that's what it is, is a mixture of spores and then uh, nutrients and some other media, like there's some uh, fungal food maybe, and other things they're probably not going to mention on the label because they're intellectual property or whatever. Right. But I, I do see how, it, like, if you were thinking of IMO as a basically like a spore slurry type thing, you're collecting the spores from the forest, it would be similar yeah. to the microgrow in a way. Yes, you're right. Yeah. In terms of the spores that are available in IMO, um, the, there, there's some similarity there. What's different about microgrow is that those spores are isolated from plant roots that are probably grown for that purpose uh -huh. um, versus IMO might have spores. We, it was, it's hard to, to quantify with spores um, in like a wet mixture, I think, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but we weren't able to see many spores in the case of IMO because there was just so many other li living organisms that were there that were more obvious. And that was like what we're trying to quantify. We didn't really look at the spores, but you're right in the sense that spores that are in IMO would go on to have similar effects, but IMO also has all these other things that I was interested in. Right, okay. Um, and then, I, so finally, the final part of the project is to compare the cost and the labor of all these things. So I kept track of how much I worked on each of these separate methods and how much they costed. Um, and I had helpers at the farm too that were helping me turn the compost, which was awesome. Uh, because we had to turn the compost really often because we did a, a super hot composting method and it would take like an hour for three of us to return it and <laughs> we had to do that every other day it's a good so, workout yeah yeah and i kept track of all of that labor and you know, included that in the in the final you know labor figure for the compost okay so what were your what were your results? Okay, well, yeah, uh, let me see. Let me get my... So, I think it's, it might be easy to just talk about the uh, microgrow first. Mm -hmm. we, did, we did submit microgrow for like the nutrient test and the um, my, microscopy, which is looking at this under the microscope and counting the organisms that are there. Like I said, we weren't able to see any, anything other than spores. What we found was that microgrow, when you apply it with that big super diluted spray, will provide like 
one ten thousandth the nutrition that compost would provide or something like that. Um, it's different for each, each of the nutrients, right? But basically negligible amount of nutrition is what you're going to get with microgrow. We also found that there were, um, oh, I don't, I hope I don't get this wrong, but there were, they claim that there are 1.2 billion hectomycorrhizal spores per pound. Um, and then there are 92,000 endomycorrhizal spores per pound. And we were able to verify the ectomycorrhizal spores. We were able to count some spores and our count found it at like 1.9 billion spores per pound, which is, you know, with science, there's always variability. So, okay, yeah, so there's at least 1.2 billion probably. But with the endomycorrhizal spores, they, they claimed that there were 92,000 and we were not able to verify that. We didn't see any endomycorrhizal spores even oh. when we looked under the microscope in a bunch of different places. So, um, so we, you know, I guess it depends on how much you trust Paul Stamets and Fungi Perfecti. Um, when <laughs> yeah, well, just very quickly for our listeners who might not know the difference between endo and ecto, oh, yeah. uh, what, what's the difference? Um, I... I hope I'm not going to mess this up either, but I'm pretty sure that ectomycorrhizal means that they form an association on the outside of the root versus an endomycorrhizal fungi actually penetrates into the root and lives inside of the root. Um, and once again, with fungi, like the way that they live is like these strands of hyphae, as they're called. Um, and they're also called mycelia. Um, and so they will basically this filamentous organism and for mycorrhizal fungi, they need a root mass to um, live. They, they get nutrition from the root mass in exchange for all the other benefits. They provide some nutrients and some water. And it's like this exchange relationship between the fungi and the, the plant that's actually really vital for plant health. Um, and so that's, that's the idea is like, well, can you just like put that in a bottle and sell it to people and like observe some benefit to your growth? Um, and maybe it's like the way forward because we're, you know, using biology instead of chemicals to benefit our plants. But, uh, you know, maybe some of my skepticism about commercial products is coming through. And also, the, you know, the results that we got say that their claims may not be completely true too. So always be cautious about those. And the, um, the studies that I was able to find on these types of products is that like, it's always like site dependent on how these products um, succeed and whether they succeed. So it's, it's always tricky. Um, and then like finding the right amount to use as well. I mentioned that they recommend using a pound for 4,000 square feet, but that might not work at your particular farm for some reason. Um, maybe the fungi aren't familiar with this type of ecosystem. Maybe uh, the weather is not right. Um, and so those types of difficulties came up when I was looking at the literature and basically the products are always tricky um, and advertised rates of application and advertised nutrition and advertised species um, are, I think, something that we should approach with caution. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then in terms of IMO, so there's, um, when we did the nutrition tests, we found that there is comparable 
phosphorus and potassium and also total salts in the IML relative to compost. But we actually had lower organic matter, lower nitrogen, um, and then a higher carbon to nitrogen ratio in the IMOs. So um, they basically wouldn't provide the same kind of benefit that a compost would provide in that case. We also found that the wilderness conditions, so the organism, we looked at the organisms that are there in the wilderness, we looked at the nutrition that was there in the wilderness, and then the nutrients, interestingly, in the wilderness versus the final IMO, we were kind of similar, mm. but the biology was very different. Mm -hmm. That IMO doesn't actually reproduce the conditions of the wilderness. And we found like lower fungal diversity. We found different fungi um, that we didn't find in the, the wilderness. And really? um, yeah, and we also found that the IMO was like highly bacterially dominated and there was almost no fungi in the in the IMO product. Um, wow. Yeah. So what, what's exactly in this IMO? We've got not very much fungi, a lot of bacteria. And what about like protozoa, like uh, uh, all the other organisms that you were talking about too? Yeah. Um, well, the, the study quantified bacteria, fungi, um, protozoa, nematodes, and different types of nematodes as well as also different types of protozoa but basically protozoa nematodes and then oomycetes. Um, and oomycetes are interesting. Well, maybe we'll talk about that in a second, but we found some really fascinating things with oomycetes. Um, my question about whether protozoa and nematodes are providing some kind of help in IMO, uh, there were no protozoa and nematodes that we could see in IMO. Um, there were plenty in the compost that we that we did still, um, which is interesting. That I think that the compost created a more balanced ecosystem, because even though the compost was also like bacterially dominated, the protozoa and nematodes are serving to um, be predators for those bacteria, which is just really beneficial for the ecosystem in general, uh, and also provides extra nitrogen for the plants. So, compost is much more well balanced. It turns out. And so does compost also have more fun, fungi? None of the things I looked at had very much fungi. Okay. Except for the, the soil in the forest, I think is maybe, I mean, the, the farm compost, the, well, I, I say farm compost, the compost that we made, mm -hmm. um, which is different from a, a municipal compost that we also studied. Oh, cool. But uh, the, the compost that we made had more fungi than others. But I don't know that you could, like it still had a really low fungus to bacteria ratio. So it was, it's still considered bacterially dominant. Yeah. But, and so back, bacterial dominant things are what you want for annual vegetables though, right? I think so. But I think the more I'm learning about this, the more I'm realizing you kind of also want a mixture too. Uh -huh. And the bacterially dominant is like, could be helpful, but when you look at the other properties that are going on in IMO, like bacteria dominance is one factor that leads us to believe this might be kind of an anaerobic. Uh -huh. But there are other factors too, like it had an acidic pH, right. um, which tells us again, that it might be anaerobic. And then we saw, you know, almost no bacterial predation, no protozoa nematodes. 
it's not necessarily like thriving in terms of an ecosystem. It's kind of an imbalanced ecosystem. And then we also saw these oomycetes, which are, uh, and then when we identified the bacteria specifically, um, there were like what are called facultative anaerobes, which means that they um, can be anaerobic when there's no when there's no oxygen available. Um, and they can also switch to aerobic ways of living as well, the bacteria. But all of these clues, basically, you know, in scientific terms, blah, 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 but it all leads me to believe that this is kind of an anaerobic mixture that we're making. And so I don't know that that's necessarily what you want right. or bacterially dominant, even if it is bacterially dominant. So what are these, what are these umycetes? Do they have any relation to <laughs> umami? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's spelled differently. It's spelled O-O-M-Y-C-E-T-E, -E, umycete. Don't, no. don't taste good. No, <laughs> I don't know how they taste, but they, so they are, uh, they used to be considered fungi. Um, they're also known as water mold. And it's a bunch of different organisms that are actually like, not related to fungi, um, very closely at least. And when that comes up for farmers and on soil tests and things like that, it's kind of cause for alarm in a lot of cases because umycetes, a lot of plant pathogens are umycetes, um, but not all umycetes are plant pathogens. Uh -huh. Yeah, so things like downy mildew um, and blight yeah. lights and things like that are umycetes oh and so uh, dampening off yeah that too yeah right and that's a that's like kind of a big problem for a lot of home gardeners um and farmers starting mm -hmm. seeds is is the, the dampening off and the, the blights uh, yeah those those are like the those are the not fun stuff but what did you find um about the umicytes that you found interesting um, what we found is that, so there's a couple different things. The um, IMOs had lots of umycetes. Okay. Especially the one that I added a little too much water to. Mm. Uh -huh. And that, you know, leads me to believe that when you use too much water, of course, you're actually creating conditions for organisms like umycetes to thrive um, and that they prefer. But also, you know, with this, with this method, it's kind of an anaerobic method in the first place. Um, and I didn't, you know, we didn't identify the umycetes, so we don't know whether they were pathogenic. But when there's a bunch of umycetes in there, um, it's probably not a good sign. The other interesting result was there were umycetes in the compost that we made, but there were not umycetes in the, um, municipal compost which okay. is something that we didn't add water to and uh -huh. so kind of helped me to think maybe we added too much water to the imo like the rest the recipe in imo says that you need between i think 60 and 70 percent moisture or something and our moisture meter only measured up to 50 percent um and so we just made sure that it was greater than 50 percent mm -hmm. testing the moisture and when it was below that i would add 
water. Mm -hmm. And um, that may have been just too wet, actually. Um, the moisture meter might have been different from the, the method that they were measuring that 60 to 70% with, or maybe um, there wasn't enough like sunlight or things like that to cook off some of the moisture. But that moisture probably contributed to the umai seeds. And then the other thing that was really interesting is the fact that with IMO, like it's famously just a method of making mold. Um, and because we associate plant benefits with fungi, we think that IMO, when you make IMO, that you are making fungi um, and like helping the plants then by like introducing them to fungi. Mm -hmm. But I actually think that the umai seeds that, or sorry, the, the IMOs that I made were moldy because of umai seeds, not fungi. Okay. So it's like this weird, like maybe profoundly um, earth shattering, IMO shattering realization that hasn't been confirmed by other studies, right? So it's not, maybe it's not earth shattering or, or IMO shattering. Um, but it would be very interesting if other studies were able to, to do this as well and see, you know, how much fungi are there, how many fungi are there, and what are the presence of umai seeds as well. Yeah. yeah. So based on, on these, on your results, you would suggest people to just make compost, right? <laughs> I think, yeah, in the meantime, as we, I would suggest what we should do is we should revise the IMO production method. Uh -huh. We could add less water. Um, we could use something different from cardboard because the cardboard like completely seals it and doesn't allow any oxygen to come in. Right. Or very little. We could also make IMO cheaper by um, using soil from the, like we had to purchase soil from a landscaping company for this project. And we also used brown sugar, which is a part of the recipe. But I'm interested in like seeing whether we could use like maple sugar or things like that, more local materials and soil from the farm itself right. to try and improve the IMO method. But in the meantime, as we do all those explorations, it's probably safe to just compost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess the other thing too is that the IMO is part of a larger system of different uh, techniques and amendments that are used. And so some, maybe just extracting the one IMO technique from the whole uh, repertoire of techniques, the whole system, that you're not getting all of the other synergistic things that might be happening if you're using the different sprays and so on too. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Cho is pretty big on like using the appropriate amendment at the appropriate time. Um, with Korean natural farming, you're not, you're not big, just you, like in a, in a scientific way, how you treat it is like, okay, well, we're just gonna do the same thing to all these plants at the same time um, and see what happens. But with like practical terms and when you actually wanna, I don't know, grow something and, and have a connection with your plants, you kind of have to take a step back from science and recognize the needs of the plant at the particular time. Um, and with Dr. Cho, he recommends using IMO at this stage of plant growth, but then using fermented fish juice at a different state of the, the um, plant's growth. Um, and you're right about that. Yeah, like taking into account the needs of the plant, I think 
is something that, that this project really didn't do and, and doesn't um, quantify. Kind of reminds me too of like biodynamic farming where you're making these different preparations um, and then spraying them to increase the, the soil growth. So I'm, it might be cool to like do experiments between comparing IMO and compost and biochar and biodynamic preparations, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's all kinds of different soil amendment methods that are available to the farmer. And there's not enough research on them, um, but there's also like so much room for just fun experimentation. If you, if you don't want to do like the whole gauntlet of scientific research and uh, trials and taking notes and that sort of thing, just doing an experiment at your house and observing what happens. Um, always recommend doing that. Even like mm -hmm. farmer either, right? You could like make this amendment for your house plants, oh, um, yeah. any raised bed if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you just have a backyard garden, it's kind of easier in a way because you have less, I don't know, you have less, you can do, you can just have one bed this, one bed that, one, you know, you have, you don't have like acres of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, this has been, been really an interesting uh, exploration into this experiment. Um, yeah, are there any other thoughts or details that you wanted to share? No, I don't think so. I mean, um, I think I covered my bases, I'm pretty sure. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you for doing this experiment as a farmer and herbalist. Uh, it's really important that we have, you know, citizen scientists who are willing to like put the time and energy into these types of experiments so that we don't have to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if we're, you know, busy with our growing season. And it's yeah. really cool to hear about your process and your results. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, of course. And um, yeah, I think, like I said, I think if anyone is curious about that type of thing or has other questions about sustainable agriculture, the SARE grant is a really great way to do that type of work. Um, and it wasn't, I mean, I, this was kind of a smaller project that I was kind of able to do in addition to other things at the farm. So mm -hmm. it's not like I was completely, you know, occupied by this. Good. I'm glad that it can be useful. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. And if folks want to um, learn more about you or get in touch with you, do you have any, like, a, a way to do that? Um, I, yeah, you, you can upload my email on the, on the podcast. That'd be great. And sure. totally just not on social media at the moment, which has been That's awesome. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> um, I do want to say that this has been like, like, I do want to thank all the people, shout out to everyone who helped yeah. me with the project. Yeah. All to Sarah, they are um, just wonderful in terms of supporting me and giving me the, the funds and the opportunity to, to make this a possible project. Mm -hmm. and to all the people who helped me through what was a really challenging year for a lot of reasons, shout out to everyone. Mm, yeah. Okay, well, awesome. Yeah, thank you, Maddie B. Yeah, nice to chat with you today. Yeah, you too.